John chapter 1 and verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The Lord Jesus Christ was at the Father's side in the work of creation. And so he is the origin of all life. But the life spoken of here is spiritual life. The means of being saved and of having communion with God. And so to live forevermore. It is this life which gives men light and rescues them from their wretched spiritual darkness. Verse 5 And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. This is true. In every age where the gospel is preached, it is light being shone in this world which is darkened by satanic unbelief. But this was especially true, of course, when our Lord ministered on the earth. The light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Fallen sinful man willfully rejects the light, which is Jesus Christ. So stubborn is his heart. Verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. So here we are introduced to John the Baptist, who was the greatest of the prophets. But he still pointed forward to one greater than him, the true light, the Lord Jesus Christ. Prophets are mere men. The Lord Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God manifest in the flesh. He is the light of the whole world. And all may come to God through him. As Christians, we bear witness always to Christ, never to the mere teachings of men. Verse 9, that was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. The Lord Jesus Christ shines sufficiently for the salvation of all mankind. So wrote the 19th century bishop J.C. Ryle. Because of this reality, that Christ is a light to the whole world, all men are under an obligation to believe in him. All may and all must come to the light. Because God commands it. That was the true light. Which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Those words that cometh into the world. May also apply to the light. As well as to every man. 
giving us the rendering that the true light which lighteth every man was coming into the world. All therefore must prepare to receive him. Because apart from him, all people will remain in an abject spiritual darkness. The child who was born in the stable at Bethlehem is none other than the light of the whole world. Hebrews 1 verse 10 Thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thine hands. As the Creator, the Lord Jesus Christ has always been present in his world. Hebrews 1.10 refers to the second person of the Trinity. Because he's always been present in his world and active in his world, we should not be surprised to see him active throughout the Old Testament period. And so the child in the manger is the one governing the affairs of men throughout the Old Testament period. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 1. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 1. This refers to the time of Moses. So we are thinking around 1400 BC. Our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Paul goes on, they did all drink the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. So it was none other than the second person of the Trinity in the pillar of cloud and of fire protecting the Israelites as they journeyed through the wilderness. As we have mentioned before, uh, we've had conversations with Hindus about what is the oldest religion in the world. We had exactly that conversation with a Hindu last week in High Wycombe. And they were shocked. This gentleman was shocked when I said Christianity is the oldest religion because it not only goes back to the creation, it predates the creation because Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. He was in the world, verse 10. And the world was made by him. And the world knew him not. So, this reference here in verse 10 may well be to the Lord being in the world in the Old Testament period, rather than simply referring 
to him being in the world during his earthly ministry, as John was writing. He has always been in the world. The world was made by him. Yet the generality of the people of the world knew him not, rejected him. Throughout the earth's history, prior to the incarnation, Jesus Christ was in the world. But men generally did not recognise him or submit to him. Although it was he who was speaking to them through creation, providence, conscience, circumstances, and through the prophets. Now, at a specific point in history, he who had always been in the world by his spirit and who had appeared at certain times in certain special manifestations upon the earth, came into the world as one who was fully a man. And in order to live out a complete human life. He so identified with his creatures. As to be born upon the earth. As one of them. And he came to live amongst the one people upon the earth. Whom God had prepared for his coming. came to the world which he himself had made. The child of Bethlehem is the creator of the universe. No wonder then that a heavenly host announced his birth. But when he came into the world and to the very special people prepared for his coming, would he be received as the one who he really is? Would he be received as the Son of God and the promised Messiah? We have the answer to that question in verse 11. He came unto his own, And his own received him not. Now an interesting little grammatical point here. The two his owns in verse 11 are slightly different in the Greek language. The first one is a neuter word and means his own things, his own special possession, namely the promised land. He came unto his own neuter, the land that had been specially set aside. The second his own is a masculine word, meaning his own people, those to whom He had shown his special favour above all other nations 
upon earth. This people had the scriptures. They had the special presence of God in their midst through the temple in Jerusalem. They had the sacrificial system foreshadowing the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. They had the prophets who had been sent to them down the centuries, teaching them God's truth and foretelling the Messiah's coming. It was to this exclusively prepared people, his own people to whom the Lord Jesus Christ has now come. Yet we are told they received him not. They did not recognise him as the Son of God, as the long-awaited deliverer of Israel, and as the unique saviour from sin. They wanted a political deliverer to restore the nation's political independence. So we learn from how the great mass of the people rejected him despite being prepared for his coming. The great hardness in the heart of man to the receiving of Jesus Christ. He came unto his own and his own received him not. Man stubbornly rejects his maker. Even when he possesses abundant life and exposure, abundant light and exposure to God's truth. And so nothing's different today. Vast millions of people, both Jew and Gentile, continue not to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. They continue to do what they did when the Lord was on the earth as a man. They reject their creator and their redeemer. The nations of the world, the Gentile nations of the world, continue through willful rebellion to do what most of the world did throughout the Old Testament period. They refuse to recognise the Trinitarian God, the Creator God, He who is Father, Son and Holy Spirit. The majority of people in our world today continue sinfully and wickedly to believe on Jesus Christ for salvation. That is not to say, of course, that the number of those who are saved down the ages is a multitude which no man can number, but relatively speaking, most reject it. Which led the Lord to say further on in John's Gospel, John 5 verse 40, 
ye will not come to me that ye might have life. Ye will not come to me that ye might have life. And that verse emphasises that men refuse to use their wills to come to the Lord Jesus. Fallen man is darkened as to his true need. The Spirit of God graciously strives with him. Therefore his rejection of Christ is his own deliberate fault for repelling the Spirit's advances. Now it is our duty of love to our unbelieving neighbour to warn him that God's wrath rests upon him. People have the truth in the gospel, in the Bible, but they suppress it by their sin and unbelief. They are by nature children of wrath, already condemned because of their refusal to turn from their sin. In John 3 and verse 36, we read, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. That's what the Lord said. So we can't tell non-believers Jesus loves you because at the moment the wrath of God abides upon them. He's reaching out with his mercy, yes. But until they humble themselves, the wrath of God abides upon them. And failure to believe in Jesus Christ has terrifying consequences. Yet for those who do receive him, there is a glorious exaltation, as the next verse here tells us. Verse 12. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. The word power there in verse 12 means authority, privilege, right. To believe in Christ confers the authority, the privilege, the right to be a son of God. To be adopted as a son of God is an unspeakable privilege into which one can only enter on God's exclusive terms no one is born into this world as a child of God you sometimes hear people foolishly say every human being is a child of God we are all God's children no that's not what the Bible says No one can become a son of God through trying to be good or through his own imagined virtue. No one can accumulate enough merit 
to qualify himself to become a child of God. There are no good works which can guarantee God the Father's acceptance of us as his sons. Nor is there any religious ceremony which can make one into a child of God. Baptism cannot do it. Baptism is a sign that the believer is made a child of God already. It is receiving the Lord Jesus Christ by faith which alone confers the power, the authority to become a child of God. And to receive Christ is to turn from all sin and believe in him as the only one who can save from sin. The Bible teaches the opposite to the lie that all human beings are God's children. All start out as children of wrath. All have to become the children of God. Each of us was once a child of wrath. We never began life as a child of God. We had to become a child of God by receiving Jesus Christ. And to receive him means trusting in his atoning death upon the cross which paid the penalty for the sins of man. In Revelation 1 and verse 7, we read this. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Sons inherit the good things which their father desires to bestow. Jesus Christ is the firstborn son of God the Father. And those who come to Christ receive his spirit and are adopted as sons of God through their relationship to Christ. We become sons of God through faith in the Son of God. We become sons of God only if we are united to the Son of God the firstborn son of God. One can only become a son of God by a supernatural act. It is called the new birth. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Then in verse 13 here, we are told of those who are born again, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 
Those who have received Jesus Christ are born not of blood. And so we are being taught here that a man can never become a son of God by blood descent. This was the great error of our Lord's people in his day when he ministered amongst them. They were trusting in their physical descent from Abraham as if that conferred a special status upon them before God and it did not. When John the Baptist was preaching and baptising in the wilderness the Pharisees and Sadducees who claimed direct descent from Abraham came to him for baptism. They came to engage in an act of outward piety and religious ritual. But John, in the spirit of prophecy, knew the true state of their proud hearts. And he tells them this in Matthew 3 and verse 8. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 8. Bring forth therefore fruits, meat for repentance, And think not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. Now what does John the Baptist mean by stones there? Well, it is thought that he was pointing to some Gentiles who were standing nearby. Who are stones in the sense of they have stony hearts. They have been blinded to the revelation of God. And so John tells the Pharisees and Sadducees these stony-hearted Gentiles are more likely to become true sons of Abraham than you who are Israelites by birth. Now Israel, as we have already mentioned, according to the flesh, had been blessed with the very special presence and revelation of God down the centuries. But this, nevertheless, gave to no individual Jew any automatic sonship and communion with God. In Romans chapter 9 and verse 6, Paul says this, Neither because they are Abraham's seed are they all children. Being descended from Abraham does not make them children of God. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, 
but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. Romans 9, 9. So there the word of God is telling us that physical descent and ancestry has no bearing at all upon spiritual blessedness. The Lord told Sarah, although she was past the age of childbearing, that Isaac would be born to her. He would be Abraham's legal heir. Even though another natural son of Abraham, Ishmael, was 14 years older than Isaac. And so we see that Isaac was born outside of the normal realm of nature. Ishmael was born according to the normal pattern of the flesh. Ishmael was not reckoned to be in the line of God's true people. Isaac was. So we learn that natural descent and the principle of primogeniture being born first did not confer upon Ishmael the special privilege of belonging to God's covenant people. Abraham also had six other sons by Keturah. They were his natural descendants. But they did not constitute Israel the people of God, whose descent would be traced only through Isaac. So Paul shows us in Romans chapter 9 that simply to be a descendant of Abraham is no necessary sign of enjoying the favour of God. Now that is exactly what John means here in verse 13 when he says, that the sons of God are born not of blood. No one can be born a Christian. And so you can be brought up in a Christian home. It does not make you a Christian. Each individual must partake of God's promises through repentance from sin and faith in Christ in order to become a child of God. This is how God deals with all people, Jew and Gentile, without exception. Mere descent from one's parents cannot bestow the grace of God. John further tells us in this 13th verse 
that believers are not born of the will of the flesh. When God draws men through the gospel, there is an obligation upon them to respond by receiving Christ. They must do the believing for themselves. God cannot believe in Jesus Christ on behalf of anyone. Each individual actually has to put his trust in Christ. But the individual is only able to do this because God has first drawn by his grace and given the ability to believe. And so when someone has come to faith and has received the Holy Spirit, He can claim no credit to himself. Look what I've done. Left to himself, he would never have come to Jesus Christ. His fallen, perverted will would never have responded to the gospel. The glory must therefore be given to God's initiative of grace. This is what is meant then, that no one can claim to be born of the will of the flesh. That is, that they, unaided and independently, decided to come to Jesus Christ. No one can be raised up to new life unless God first draws them to faith in Jesus Christ. And John then goes on to tell us in verse 13 that the true children of God are not born of the will of man. So no man can cause another man to become a child of God. It is God who gives the Holy Spirit upon his own terms. Those terms are heartfelt repentance and heartfelt trusting in Christ. In other words, no ruler can decree that the subjects of his kingdom must become Christians. The Emperor Constantine famously declared that the empire would become Christian. And he commanded everyone to get baptised. That is a complete contradiction of Romans 1.13. Because no one becomes a child of God by the will of man. No religious ceremony devised and carried out by men can make them into sons of God. Circumcision cannot. It's interesting that the prophets in the Old Testament ended up describing the people, even though they were physically circumcised, as being uncircumcised. 
because they didn't have the spiritual reality behind the outward sign. So circumcision cannot make one a child of God. Baptism cannot. The laying on of hands cannot. These are merely outward signs of what God must do within a person's heart. Nor can any good works make one a child of God. By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. No man-pleasing charitable deeds can remove the guilt of sin or compensate for the wickedness of men's hearts. So this verse 13 is telling us that no one is able to turn himself to God nor make himself acceptable to God. No one can by his own work make himself into a son of God. No one can claim that he is a son of God by physical descent. Man's natural condition is one of total separation from God. Indeed, there is an enmity. If anyone is to be saved from eternal condemnation, it must be Christ alone who does the work. So looking at these verses 4 to 13 as a unit, we learn that Jesus Christ is the source of spiritual life for all who are spiritually dead in sin. The child of Bethlehem is the light of the world. A world floundering in a horrible, satanic darkness. The Lord Jesus Christ, as well as being the source of spiritual life, is also the source of physical life and physical matter because he is the creator. The world into which he was born at Bethlehem is the world which he himself made. What a miracle that is. And it speaks to us of the great condescension involved in being born as a man. He causes those who receive him to be born again. By God's power, so as to become the very children of God. He is the source of spiritual life for a world spiritually dead. As we have said, all are devoid of spiritual life, but through Christ comes the new birth. As many as received him, verse 12, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. The birth of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago requires a response. All are spiritually dead and devoid of spiritual life. No one can make themselves into sons of God. Christ must do the work. So all need to come to him to be made into new creatures by repenting of sin 
and trusting in him for salvation. This is the message we declare at this time of year and throughout the year. All who do repent and believe are born again of God's spirit and become the very children of God. The birth of Jesus Christ is an earth-shattering event because he is the only source of light and of life. The birth of Jesus Christ is of earth-shattering significance such that every single human being must take notice of it. Every single person living on this earth must personally consider the significance of the birth of Jesus Christ. Because one's view of the child in the manger is quite literally a matter of life and death. It is a matter of spiritual life and spiritual death. It is a matter of eternal life or eternal death. Amen.